Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God, we do hunger for you. Let us be nourished by your word of who you are, to be filled by your grace, your mercy, following Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, all to your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we actually begin the message, you'll notice for the sermon notes that it's not as much fill in the blanks today. I'm actually asking you to try to think through and synthesize some answers here, not just fill in the blanks. And as you know, uh, I often will begin with a question. You know, uh, this past spring we said, well, what is ministry? And we talked quite a bit about what is ministry? And who is Jesus is another question. What is the gospel? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And now today, here's the question. Who is God? Now, I'm not asking that as a trick question by any means. It's not a trick question. But could you speak to who God is in maybe 10, 15 seconds, could you, could you have enough for 10 to 15 seconds, or maybe a minute? Could you speak to who God is for 10 minutes, or 30 minutes, or an hour? Again, it's not a trick question. I'm simply asking you, what is the depth and the breadth of your knowledge of who God is? You see, who God is and what He has done shapes how you worship and praise. Who God is, your understanding of who God is, what He has done, and who you are in relationship to God really shapes how you worship and praise. If you have a shallow understanding of who God is, you will often have perhaps a more shallow faith. Or let let me put it another way. If you have a Reader's Digest version of God, it is most likely that you're going to have a Reader's Digest version of faith. Easy to skim through, right? But lacking substance and depth. The problem with that lacking of substance and depth, depth, is when you come to difficult times in your life, and we all come to really difficult times in our life, you don't have the foundation, the depth, the substance to deal with those situations. And you often start blaming God or falling away from faith. On the other hand, by the way, and not as intuitively, when times are going really well, you start to think, well, I don't need God, really. Because things are going well. But there comes to a point in our lives where we often say, is that all there is? Is that all there is to who God is? To my faith in God? I'm hungering for the substance of who God is. I'm hungering for the substance of faith. I want that ever greater love and grace, and mercy, that reconciliation. I hunger for that. And the interesting thing is, 
when you start to know who God is, when you are, when God draws you closer to Himself, it's not that you generate love and grace and mercy. It's not you do it by your own will, but because you are in relationship with God, that you are drawn close to Him, then you receive His love and His grace and His mercy and patience. And people hunger for that. But you really have to have an understanding of who God is. Because when you understand who God is, you have a greater faith, a greater trust that He is sovereign over all. That that there's not one molecule, there's not one atom in the universe that is outside His rule. And thus you can rest assured in who He is and His promises. That's what this morning is about. Of who God is. What He has done. (laughs) What we have done. And His faithfulness. His love and His grace and His mercy. And so our roadmap, if you will, this morning, four things. Praise God who keeps His covenants because even though we rebel and reject Him, He is a God of forgiveness and grace. So let's begin first with praising God. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. So the context is they had actually just celebrated for seven days the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And they didn't just leave after that. They actually wanted more. And so for three hours, the book of the law from the first five books of the Bible were read. Three hours Now, I joked a little bit about that last week, you know, that what would it be like if we just read the Scripture for three hours? And there were some visitors last week, and I thought, oh, boy, did I scare them away? Did they think we really just sat and read for three hours? But they, they did. They actually listened to God's Word for three hours, and then they also confessed their sins and received His forgiveness. For another three hours. (laughs) Apparently that really did scare visitors away from last week. But that's the context. So you get to understand there's a depth, right? There's a depth of worship because they knew who God is. So they had, just like we do, they had a call to worship. Verse 5, then they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They stood up. You know, there are times we know when we should stand up. Like growing up, I was taught when you're introduced to someone, you should stand up and shake their hands. Or we stand up when the bride comes down the aisle. Or in parades when veterans are coming by. We stand up. Why do we do any of that? Because of honor 
and respect, don't we? We respect them and we honor them by standing up. And it's the same thing that we do in worship. There are certain times we stand up here. So we stand up when there's the call to worship. We stand up for the first song for the confession of sins. We stand up for the confession of the reading of the gospel, the confession of faith, the Lord's Prayer, the closing song. I mean, there are times when we stand up. Now, it's not dictated in Scripture that we do that. We don't have to do it. But we do do it, starting from Nehemiah on down, right? We stand because it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of knowing who God is. And there are certain times that we stand with the love, with the gratitude, the respect, the honor, the awe of who God is. So it's not just an exercise to get your blood going in case you've fallen asleep. Right? It's not just that. But there's a difference. I mean, you can make it just ritual, by the way, and just stand and sit and stand and sit. But if you actually stand because of honor of God, it's a whole different type of worship. For those who are worshiping at home, I would encourage you to stand as well when we stand because it's a different level of worship. It is an understanding of who you are and who God is. So they stood. They stood and they said this. You are the God. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of the heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. They are praising God, the Creator, who is one God over all. And the Hebrew is actually pretty emphatic. You, you are the Lord. You alone. You made the heavens. You uh, preserve them. And all of the heavens worship you. It is specific, and it says, you alone are God. And if you want to have an understanding of God, that's the first place to start. That he is God alone, that there is no other God before him. That should, be, that should ring a little bit familiar, that being the first commandment, right? There is no other God. There is no other second God. He's it. It alone. And he is the creator God who made everything. The plants, the animals, the oceans, the things that swim in them, the mountains, the stars, all of the heavens. He has made everything by the power of his word. He is the creator God. You are the creator God. You alone You are glorious. Now, I know it's hard to wrap our heads around that. I mean, that's sometimes why at night you look up the stars and you start just to think of who God is and the wonder, the awe. Or if you actually go in very small and you start to take a look at the cells and how complex a cell is, and you start to think of the awe of that. 
And then you glory in who he is as creator God. You know, two of my favorite chapters in the New Testament are from the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5. It is about the glory of heaven, who, who God is and his glory. And so in chapter 4, it says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and the, 20, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is the creator God, and you should be able to fill up a whole sheet of paper talking about our creator God. He is also our God who keeps covenants. It says this, verse 7 and 8 from Nehemiah chapter 9. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. See, when they are praying to God, is not just generic God. It says, the Lord, the God, or Lord God. And they have a specific meaning when they say, Lord God. For those who have been with us for a while, you know when it says, Lord. Now, all in capital letters, letters in the Old Testament, that means Yahweh. And there's also God, which is Elohim, and that's the creator God. In Genesis chapter 1, where it talks all about the creation of everything, the word Elohim is used for God. This is our creator God. But when it gets to chapter 2 and starts to talking about mankind, then it becomes Lord or Yahweh. Because God interacts with you and me in a personal relationship. He interacts with you and I, with you and me as in covenants. He acts as a redeemer. So we have Yahweh, Elohim. And He is our, he is our God of covenants. He is our God of who redeems us. When I say covenant, let's be clear, that is a sacred promise. And God keeps His promises. It is God who initiates covenants with us. With Abraham, He made a covenant. And it actually references Genesis chapter 15 from our reading in Nehemiah, but Genesis chapter 15, it says, 
and he brought him, that is, and God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God made a covenant with Abraham and said, your offspring shall be as great as the number of stars. God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham, and he kept that promise even when we take a look at the reality and think, oh, I'm too old. Abraham would say, I'm too old. Sarah would say, I'm too old. But it is not impossible with God. He made that promise even when Sarah laughed, even when Sarah doubted him, even when Abraham would have his doubts. Yahweh makes a covenant with his people, and he keeps that covenant even when there's doubts. And he loves you so much that he hears your cries just as he heard the cry of the people in Israel. So, uh, I should say in Egypt. It says this, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire at night to light for them the way in which they should go. You see, God is a God of covenant. He is our God who is our Redeemer. He heard the cry of the people that they were in slavery, that they were being oppressed, and they cried out to Him, and He redeemed Him. By His mighty power, He parted the Red Sea. By His love and His grace and His mercy, He gave them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He literally lit their way, showed them the path that they need to go. And he also, by his holiness and righteousness, gave them the law so that they too would be that covenantal people with him. He gave them the Ten Commandments, the law, not to oppress them, but because he is holy and righteous and he has called them and he's called you and me to be holy, to follow his way, not the way of the world. It says this in our reading from Nehemiah, you came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them the Holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statues and a law by Moses, your servant. So God, our Redeemer, not only takes us out of slavery, He also makes a covenant with us. And He says, this covenant in which, in which you have will bring you life, and I will provide for you my people in this covenant. And He did provide for the people. It says this, you gave them bread from heaven and for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So he gave them 
water. He gave them bread. He gave them land. He gave them everything they needed. So I hope you can start to think about the connections from this to Christ Jesus. For the connections are sure and true. And they should actually give you assurance of your faith. You see, in Christ Jesus, we do have Yahweh Elohim. In Christ Jesus, we have Yahweh Elohim. Jesus, His name itself means Yahweh saves. That Jesus came to save His people from their sin. That He is your Redeemer. And in His blood, He made a new covenant. A new covenant. He provided everything. He fulfilled the old covenant. And now He made a new covenant with for all who would believe. He made a new covenant for you, for all who would believe in His name. And He provides for you in that new covenant, not just water, which which you drink and get thirsty again, but water which gives you eternal life. He provides you food. He provides Himself as bread, which gives you eternal life. By His death, by His resurrection, you have the assurance of eternal life with Him in the heavenly places. This is who He is, Yahweh, the covenant Redeemer. And He is also Elohim. He was there at the beginning of creation. By Him, through Him, all things were made, and He upholds all things by His Very word. You see, this is what we're talking about back in Nehemiah. Look, they weren't just reciting something to recite things. They were recalling to mind who God is and who they are in relationship to God and His love and His grace and His mercy. And we too come here every week not just for a recitation of words, of things, but to remember, to recall into present who Jesus is and what He has done for us. This is the depth, the breadth of who God is, of Christ Jesus is. He is faithful, even though, even though We aren't, right? Even though we rebel against Him. Even though we sin against Him and reject Him. Verse 16 and 17. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So the people, right? They cried out to God, God, save us from the Egyptians, from slavery. And so God did. He saved them. He redeemed them. 
But it didn't go as they thought it would go or how they thought it should go. And so they started to complain about the food, about the water, and everything else. And they said, well, maybe we should just go back to slavery because at least we had certain foods and certain water, so we would prefer slavery to your plan, God. Isn't that human nature? You know, when things get tough, when things don't go as they planned or we plan, we are often willing to go back to our old ways. We have an idea of what God's plan should be, don't we? goes from A to B. So there's a cartoon that I found that I thought would work really well today. My plan, riding the bicycle, A to B, God's plan. And we go up and down and we go through all of these difficulties and we think, hold on, this is way too hard. Maybe I should just go back to my old ways. That's human nature. Because we think we know God's plan better than God himself knows his plan. And I got to tell you, it's heartbreaking because every pastor has stories about people who are in difficulties, in relationships, addictions, problems in life, financial issues. And they will come to a pastor and say, oh, pastor, uh, I really need faith. I need to come back. Uh, uh, can, can you help me out? And so as pastors, we do. And then, then things might improve. And so the pain's not as much. And people go right back to their old ways. And it's just heartbreaking when you see that. This is the nature the Israelites had. This is the nature most of us have, whether we like it or not. And it's a cycle that we seem to do over and over again. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26 through 29. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. So when you read the rest of those verses, you find that God warns them again and again, and they come back, and then they go right back to their old ways. And they come back, and they go right back to their old ways. And again, the truth is, you and I are not that much different than they are. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus, right? To be a disciple of Jesus is more than church going. It is about studying, taking in his word, and living that word out in our lives. And most people find out at some point they have to die to something, some sort of pride or something in the self, and they think, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Or, hold on. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm still having some of the same problems I have in my life. And so they leave the faith. They reject Jesus. Oh, there's got to be another way to do it. 
And then when things become really hard, then they come back for a while and they go through that cycle. Nehemiah 9.29, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. Peter was even more blunt about this. In 2 Peter, he talks about people who know Christ and then turn away from him. He says this, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog has returned to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Not nice words, right? But this is how many people are in their relationship to Christ Jesus. You see, we want to minimize, even sanitize our rebellion, our turning away from God. And that's what people often do. They want to sanitize it, minimize it. But what the people did in Nehemiah, they actually came before the Lord and they confessed their sin. Because they know in the confession of sin, God gives forgiveness. Because He is a God of mercy and grace, He is God of faithfulness and forgiveness. So let's go to our God of grace. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You see, despite our sin, our our rebellion, Yahweh Elohim is faithful. He is merciful and full of grace. What is mercy? Mercy is that withholding the punishment. Withholding punishment we deserve. And grace is getting something we don't deserve. Now, all of us kind of nod our heads, me included in this. We go, yep, mercy and grace. Sounds good. But could you talk about mercy for more than 10 or 15 seconds? Could you talk about mercy for 20 minutes? Or grace for an hour? See, there's a depth and breadth to God and His mercy and grace that we kind of skim over. Now, when I talk about grace, and actually we were just talking about this on Wednesday night uh, in our in-person study on, hey, pastor, I have a question. We were talking about grace. And I said, grace is the hardest thing to accept. And we're like, hardest thing to accept? I said, well, let me give you an example. Okay, you go out to lunch with some folks, right? Nothing fancy, but you're just going out to lunch. And then at the end, somebody says, I'll pay for everyone. Now, some of you might go, okay. But most of you are going to argue, right? Oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. I have to pay my own way. I have to pay for that grace that you're giving me. Okay, you can pay this time, but next time I'll pay. Do you understand how how hard that is? 
I mean, come on, you've had 20-minute arguments about who's going to pay, right? Rock, paper, scissors after a while, something like that. That's how hard it is to accept grace at lunch. But the grace that God gives you is such on a greater scale than that. And we don't often stop just to ponder that level of who God is and the grace that he gives to us in Christ Jesus. And so we go back to the cross, don't we? The cross, where God's mercy and grace overflows. And then we start to realize it's all grace. Not just a little grace, but it's all grace. It's all grace. And then we stand in awe of who God is and what he has done for us. That's good news, right? So we are going to actually conclude our series now in Nehemiah. And I've marveled all along how relevant, how powerful this book from the Old Testament is in our lives, how it ties directly to our lives. So today, as we wrap up this series as disciples of Jesus, dig deep into your faith, your understanding of who God is, who you are in relationship to him, and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.